Good afternoon. Welcome. I'm Christopher Preble. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Uh, thank you all for attending. Welcome uh, also to those of you watching on the Internet. Uh, for those of you here in the F.A. Hayek Auditorium, uh, I'd ask you please silence your phones and other electronic noise-making devices or other noise-making devices out of courtesy to your fellow attendees. Um, one would think that other foreign policy topics, uh, including the ongoing turmoil in Iran and North Korea's latest shenanigans, might have pushed the issue of U.S.-Pakistan relations to the sidelines. But while the subject is not currently the leading concern, it certainly hasn't disappeared, not by any stretch. However, uh, I think perhaps fearing that Americans might have forgotten just how important Pakistan is, we had this rather remarkable op-ed in yesterday's Washington Post by Pakistani President Asif Ali Zardari. Um, I say remarkable less by what Mr. Zardari says, but rather by what he doesn't say, and also in his tone, which uh, struck me as rather brazen. Um, for example, he... Um, he leaves out some pretty crucial details of the history of the last 30 years. He, he implies the United States is the prime source of Pakistan's troubles, and the United States, therefore, must bear the cost of putting Pakistan right again. He notes our support for military strongmen, from Zia to Musharraf, uh, and fairly castigates Washington for dancing with dictators in pursuit of perceived short-term goals. Uh, he also blasts the West for leaving behind a political vacuum that ultimately led to the Talibanization and radicalization of Afghanistan, the birth of al-Qaeda and the current jihadist insurrection in Pakistan. Again, fair comments all. Uh, of course, he doesn't admit that Pakistanis themselves have supported non-state actors and proxies in both Afghanistan and Kashmir, and that, as is widely suspected, many still do. Uh, he might legitimately claim that such decisions were made over his objections by those nasty military dictators that we backed, and many no doubt were. Uh, but he also makes no mention of his country's nuclear arsenal, developed in open defiance of international norms, nor their failure to safeguard their program in defiance of simple common sense. Having said all that, however, in the end, Mr. Zardari, perhaps in spite of himself, manages to, manages to elicit some sympathy, even from uh, so cold-hearted a realist as myself. He has, after all, paid a very heavy price. And I think that no one here would trade places with him today, right now. He needn't worry that Americans uh, have forgotten about his country. We haven't forgotten that Pakistan possesses a few hundred nuclear warheads, is the epicenter of Islamic extremism, and is the staging ground for attacks on U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Uh, and so while the Mullahs in Iran or Kim Jong-il might uh, divert our gaze from Pakistan for a time, we know the problems there aren't going away. So thank you all for your interest in this extraordinarily important subject. Thanks to our conference staff here at Cato for making these events possible. I'd also like to extend special thanks to my colleague, Malou Innocent, who organized this forum and for convening such an outstanding panel of experts to talk about these issues. I'm going to introduce them all in the order they're going to speak. Uh, let me first introduce to, uh, our first speaker, Ambassador Wendy Chamberlain, president of the Middle East Institute. Before joining the Institute in March 2007, she served as Deputy High Commissioner for the UN High Commissioner for Refugees from 2004 to 2006. And before that, as administrator, assistant administrator in the Asian Near East Bureau for the U.S. Agency for International Development. She was the U.S. ambassador 
to Pakistan from 2001 to 2002, and to Laos from 1996 to 1999. Among other diplomatic postings in her distinguished career, she was a deputy in the Bureau of International Counter-Narcotics and Law Programs, deputy chief of mission in the U.S. Embassy in Kuala Lumpur, director of press and public affairs for the Near East Bureau, and director of global affairs and counterterrorism at the National Security Council. And she has held other positions in Morocco, Pakistan, Malaysia, and Zaire. Our Our second speaker today is Mukhtar Khan, Pakistani Pashtun journalist, policy analyst based here in Washington. Since 9-11, he has extensively covered Pakistan's troubled frontier, both for the local and international media, including the BBC, Mail on Sunday, Voice of America, and has visited the region frequently. Currently, he's working on a book on increasing trends of militancy in the Pakistan-Afghanistan border regions and its spillover to the rest of the world. He's also working as chief media strategist for AFPAC Media Solutions and senior advisor to the Pashtun Focus, besides contributing analytical articles for the Jamestown Foundation and the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. Our third speaker today is Ken Luongo, president of the Partnership for Global Security. He has experience in fissile material control, nuclear terrorism, and proliferation, and geographic expertise in Pakistan, India, Russia, and the former Soviet Union. Previously, he served as senior advisor to the Secretary of Energy for nonproliferation policy and the director of the Office of Arms Control and Nonproliferation at the Department of Energy. Luongo has served with the Senate and House Armed Services Committee and has worked extensively on Russian and Pakistani nuclear security issues. And finally, our final speaker is my colleague, Malou Innocent, foreign policy analyst here at Cato, where primary research interests are U.S. foreign policy toward Pakistan, Afghanistan, and China. Her most recent study, which is available, uh, is Pakistan and the Future of U.S. Policy, published earlier this year. And she's currently finishing work on a major study, uh, co-authored with our colleague Ted Carpenter on Afghanistan, which is scheduled for release in August. Uh, Malou traveled last year to Pakistan, courtesy of a generous grant from the Ford Foundation. She's published reviews and articles on national security and international affairs in scholarly and policy journals such as Survival, Congressional Quarterly, Harvard International Review, and Armed Forces Journal. Please join me in welcoming Ambassador Chamberlain. Thank you very much. If you don't mind, I'll just do it from right here. I can see you better. Uh, And thank you very much for that kind introduction. You know, I was also struck by uh, the op-ed piece by Pakistan President uh, Asif Ali Zadari. Um, struck, it, it did contain a number of things. I think we could spend the entire hour talking about it. Uh, one of the points that struck me was he began by saying that sometimes uh, foreign policy issues can be resolved by the withdrawal of the occupying power. He cited Vietnam. He cited the French from Algeria, uh, the British from the subcontinent. But he his conclusion was that in the case of Afghanistan and Pakistan today, uh, that was not his conclusion, that the United States should stay and stay and help resolve the problem because we uh, need to work together um, as uh, partners uh, facing a common enemy was his implied message in that. Uh, We get it. The uh, Obama administration has designed, under the able leadership of uh, my old uh, uh, former boss and mentor, Richard Holbrook, 
has devised a strategy that clearly puts Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, at the forefront of our foreign policy. Uh, and they have pledged su- sufficient resources and have, have, uh, uh, have indicated that they're there uh, for the long term. But this is not going to be easy. This is going to be very, very hard. And for those of you who have been following the, uh, the developments in Pakistan, know just how hard it is, I guess. Because I can tell you I have been doing, uh, been following Pakistan for a number of years and, and almost obsessed with it in my reading habits. And the more I learn about Pakistan, the more I realize I don't know. The more complex... Uh, and, and uh, uh, difficult to understand and piece together it is. And frankly, when I meet with Pakistani uh, uh, scholars, I find they, they share my bafflement. Uh, so I thought in my brief few minutes here, I'm going to try to lay out six problems, six tough issues, six obstacles that are going to stand in the way of the United States and Pakistan coming together as uh, partners facing a common enemy with a common purpose of uh, stabilizing Pakistan and Afghanistan as a region um, and uh, dismantling or, or, or uh, uh, disarming the, uh, the militants. Uh, the first was very clear, I think, already in our discussion today, and that is we face a huge obstacle of... Uh, not really understanding each other, not, and definitely not trusting each other. This phenomenon even has a name. It's called the trust deficit. Uh, it, it won't be a surprise to some of you, but most Pakistanis, at least the vast majority, even educated elites, even high-ranking senior government officials, or, have this, this notion, this belief that the United States, India, and Israel have formed, are colluding uh, to break up Pakistan and seize the nuclear weapons. There's evidence. They point to the, our pact with India, the, the um, uh, nuclear agreement that we made last year. I think we'll talk about more. My colleague will talk about it a little bit more. They look at our press, who every article uh, hammers on the safety of the uh, nuclear weapons. They're convinced that our ultimate ulterior purpose in being involved in Pakistan is really to seize their nuclear weapons, so for which is they're very, uh, it's a sign of national pride. Um, this is part of the trust deficit. Uh, they claim that we're just there to, uh, to use them and then leave them. They, they look to uh, our using Pakistan to help evict the Soviets from uh, Kabul, and then we left them by slapping on the Pressler Amendments. They, uh, they see us as uh, using them now uh, to fight our counterterrorism objectives and dismantling uh, Osama bin Laden, and they have no faith in us at all that we won't uh, skigaddle as soon as uh, we believe that we're sufficiently secure from uh, a global al-Qaeda network. And they, um, they uh, distrust us for that. Uh, this trust deficit works two ways. Second obstacle, uh, between our militaries. And I would say that this trust deficit 
folds into our military-to-military relations in a way that is a huge obstacle if we're to work together to fight a common uh, militancy and insurgency both in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, we call uh, the ISI, the, uh, which is the intelligence group of the, um, of the Army, a rogue element. We say the Army, uh, our media is constantly blasting that, our, that the Pakistan Army is infiltrated by extremists um, and that, uh, uh, the, um, that the Army has no willpower uh, to fight the insurgencies, does not, does not want to fight the Taliban, and in fact is incapable of fighting the Taliban because they're, they're too targeted against an Indian foe and don't have uh, counterinsurgency capabilities. Now, you know, in every, in, in every uh, uh, narrative, there's always an element of truth on both sides, uh, quite frankly. But these are obstacles that are thrown up. Uh, what we need to better understand, and I think Secretary Clinton um, said in a in a statement just a couple of days ago, began to to dig deeper into this trust deficit within the military by pointing out that a lot of what we uh, find now are obstacles for our military to military cooperation. We really were there at the beginning. We were really very much a part of the development of. Uh, certain policies and attitudes within the Pakistan army. Uh, the introduction actually pointed out a couple of them. Uh, we encourage the Pakistan ISI and the Pakistan military to support the same Muj groups during the Soviet occupation that have now flipped and are attacking both Pakistan and us. Uh, we used uh, militant, call them, you know, one man's freedom fighters, another man's terrorist. We used militants to uh, against the Soviets with the Pakistanis. They followed that same model in supporting what they call the South Punjab terrorist groups uh, like Lakshal Taiba, Jaish Mohammed, uh, in the 90s after uh, we'd, we'd left um, against an Indian foe in Kashmir. Same model uh, uh, as we had used. And uh, um, these past examples have now come back to haunt us. Uh, the... Um, the uh, Pakistanis, uh, the same Pakistani ISI officers who we used and funded and supported as handlers of the Taliban, uh, the Afghan Taliban fighters and Muj during the Soviet period, they actually got to know and dealt with on a day-to-day basis and accepted into their families and, and marriages and have became friends. And those ties exist, and they exist today on a personal basis. So now we are saying, hey, uh, they're the enemy, and they're saying, wait, what do you mean? They're my cousin brother. And you actually helped us form those ties. So it is a lot more complicated uh, than it appears on the surface. Uh, we can talk more about this. A, a third tough issue um, and I better hurry up or I'll never get out of here. <laughs> uh, predators. Uh, it's, uh, you go to Pakistan and most Pakistanis will lash out at the United States for using drones, unmanned drones, predators uh, uh, in Pakistan, violation of Pakistan's sovereignty, killing civilians. Look, nobody uh, can uh, condone uh, military strikes that kill innocent civilians, and this is a moral issue. But, but our 
commander in chief, President Obama, faces another dilemma. And that is he has forsworn the deployment of combat troops in Pakistan at the request of the Pakistanis in, in, in uh, consideration of sovereignty issues. Um, but, that, but in Pakistan is where our number one en- threat to U.S. security exists. Uh, predators is one of the few uh, weapons that is shown to be effective against taking out the leadership of al-Qaeda. The CIA reports that the predators have knocked out 11 of the top 20. MI5 claims that it's working, in fact, working better since uh, Petraeus took over and and uh, introduced some uh, uh, more precise technology and uh, better on-the-ground operating procedures. It's a much more effective inch, uh, weapon today in knocking out the leadership than it had been in the earlier years. Uh, Pakistani Ambassador Harkani told me the other day that that their records show that no civilians have died since September 2008. I can't verify that, but um, that is a claim that's out there. So, so, but don't be fooled. Uh, the militants are very effective at uh, using the predator strikes against the United States with the people. Uh, some USAID colleagues of mine who were working in the Fatah said they came across a village and found some children playing a fun game. And the fun game was, whose school is going to get hit by the predator next? And when they did a little bit of research uh, into this game, they found that no predator had ever struck anywhere near the village where the children were playing this game. Obviously, this was an import. This was uh, a, a, a tool of controlling the population. So, to use or not to use. Fourth issue, understanding the role of religion. The militants have been very effective in wrapping themselves in the mantle of religion. How best to control a population? What more compelling argument can you make than God? And the government doesn't have this. The militants own it. And the government doesn't have a good, compelling narrative uh, against that. Who can argue in Pakistan against Sharia law? Uh, it's it's difficult. But on the other hand, and again, the complexities, uh, the harsh version of 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 Islam that the militants are pushing is not at all popular with the vast majority of Pakistan people. They reject it. Even before the military operation in SWAT, uh, nearly half a million people had left um, because of the harsh version of uh, Sharia law and judicial and, and administrative uh, uh, procedures that was being imposed on them. It is not popular. They don't like it. And just this week, when the militants, Betala Masood, uh, took the war inside religion in Pakistan by uh, uh, assassinating uh, Sarfas Naimi, did I pronounce that right? The, the moderate cleric in Lahore that had spoken out against uh, the militant's brand of religion. Uh, it is now metastasizing into a religious, in, inter-religious war that I think we don't, I don't quite understand. Fifth uh, point uh, is that we have not quite come to grips with the fact that the al-Qaeda is evolving. It is not Osama bin Laden's organization uh, anymore. If he were to leave tomorrow, 
we would still face a very nasty insurgency in Afghanistan and Pakistan. What they have been able to very successfully do is to knit together a loose network of uh, folks with grievances uh, in Pakistan um, that include the South Punjabi, like Shal Taiba, Jaisal Muhammad groups, which include the uh, former Afghan um, uh, Taliban, Mullah Omar, which include uh, a, a very um, uh, loose umbrella of militant tribal leaders headed by Betala Masood called the Pakistan Taliban, who now some say control as many as 20,000 uh, uh, fighters, but they have local local power issues and ambitions, which include criminal gangs and drug gangs that raise money by robbing banks and kidnapping Pakistanis for ransom. They're all beginning now to show signs of connections with al-Qaeda, common ideologies, uh, common training, common um, uh, communication uh, procedures. I can provide details, but I'm running out of time. Uh, It's been taken into the cities. It's not just along the border. We obsess with Fatah when the fight is really in Karachi and Lahore today and, and in Islamabad, and, uh, etc. My final point um, is, uh, is the, the important one and the, the one that, that no former government official can, uh, can make remarks without addressing, and that is, well, what do we do about it? Um, it uh, is clear to me that uh, some of our aims and goals, because of these obstacles, because of our lack of understanding, uh, it gets to be a bit of a muddle. We need to clearly communicate to the Pakistani people that uh, our, our relationship is with the people of Pakistan. It's not with one man like Musharraf. It's not with one institution like the army. It's not with one party like uh, the current PPP, because we prefer it. It's with the people of Pakistan, and that needs to be clearly said. Uh, we need to clearly direct our aid, and now it's going to be significant aid with the uh, imminent passage of the uh, Kerry Luger bill, to be more demand-driven and not supply-driven. Our aid should not be based on what we can uh, find in our budget or what Congress will approve, but on what the needs are to get the job done, meaning stabilizing Pakistan and addressing the grievances and the needs of the people. Uh, We need to clearly demonstrate to Pakistan that we're there for the long term. Uh, I think uh, President Obama, in a very long interview to to the Don, that appeared in the Don today, uh, made this case. He addressed some of these communications issues. He said very clearly in the first sentence of the Don article that uh, we were not there to seize their nuclear weapons, but there to help the people uh, in meeting their needs. Um, we, uh, with the Kerry Luger bill, and with my and, and stemming from my experiences with the USAID, we need to rethink the way we give assistance. We cannot begin to funnel. Uh, a tenfold increase in assistance to Pakistan using the same old methods that we have been uh, with AI, USAID. We need to develop uh, fresh new ideas, and that is what the Middle East Institute is going to focus on uh, in establishment of a center for uh, Pakistan studies. We need, and in my view, here are my views, I think that uh, we need to uh, help the Pakistan put human safety and security first, 
this means a significant uh, investment into local police, community police, uh, uh, because that is where people are are protected, and that is where, uh, through local police, you have the better uh, intel for the kind of insurgencies that we're facing. Not the blunt force of armies, not uh, Pakistani Air Force strikes on villages, which is even more blunt and destructive than... Um, uh, predators at a time. And uh, thirdly, we need to focus on job creation. And I, I believe that we need to do this through uh, new forms of private partnership, private-public partnerships. So um, uh, on politically, and this is my last point, we need to start to support what's good, what's positive, what's refreshing that's happening inside Pakistan today. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you very much uh, for giving me the opportunity to speak to this August gathering uh, on this important issue. Uh, as Wendy Chamberlain uh, told in her speech that Pakistani society uh, is very complex and she is very right uh, in sp- uh, uh, telling like that and it is becoming more and more complex with each passing day. Uh, yesterday I was uh, just looking at the uh, profile of one of my uh, journalist friend in Pakistan on his uh, Facebook. And when I was looking at his political views, so in front of that he says that uh, he is confused. So if a BBC journalist in Pakistan who is covering the tribal area, he, who is talking to military official and the political personality, if he himself is confused, so what could be uh, what could can we talk of other common people so most of the people are confused in pakistan and the rest of the world uh, the confusion is because of there are so many actors some are, uh, some are in the form of taliban and the taliban have also uh, a variety of shapes like uh, when we uh, talk of uh, ttp and fata which is headed by betullah mahsud uh, this is a very strong organization. Uh, so far, uh, they have targeted more than 300 uh, tribal elders in that region. And today, uh, they killed another important personality which, who has raised against Betullah. His name is uh, Kari Zainuddin Mahsud. Uh, he is the person who had challenged uh, Betullah Mahsud a few days ago, and he had the support of Pakistan government also. But he was killed by his own uh, bodyguard. So you can judge how powerful and how influential uh, Betullah Mahsud is. Uh, he has at least 15,000 uh, um, uh, guerrilla commanders uh, under his command. The total number of uh, uh, militants in that region in Fata is said to be around 30,000, but in South Waziristan they are around 15,000. And uh, apart from TTP, there is another uh, militant organization, uh, which is TNSM or Tahriki Nifazi Shariati Muhammadi and Swat, who are uh, asking for uh, their uh, brand of Sharia in Sawat and Malakand region. The Pakistani government uh, now says that they have already uh, cleared uh, the Sawat region from those militants, but we have not heard... Uh, so far that any uh, uh, important uh, militant has been either killed or captured. The Supi Muhammad, who is, who is the head of this uh, organization, he is still at large. Same is the case with Maulana Fazlullah, uh, who was uh, 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 involved in 
killing the local uh, people who are against his brand of Sharia. We have also Punjabi Taliban. Uh, yesterday, uh, Pakistani official told that there are around 3,000 in South Waziristan. So this is a huge number uh, who are based, who are coming from uh, southern Punjab, and they are based there. Uh, they are mostly uh, uh, sectarian groups uh, who have uh, gathered together, and they are now uh, fighting alongside Tehreek Taliban Pakistan. We have also Afghan Taliban in the Fata region, and also in uh, uh, Quetta. In Quetta, it is said that they have a shura. Uh, which is run by Mullah Muhammad Umar, who is the supreme leader of Taliban. Also, they have a strong uh, base in North Waziristan, uh, Fata region, uh, which is headed by uh, Jalaluddin Haqqani and his son Sirajuddin Haqqani. So that Haqqani group is very influential not only in Afghanistan, but also in Pakistani uh, Taliban. Uh, uh, Taliban. Uh, um, uh, we have some sectarian groups. Uh, Lashkari Jangwi and uh, Sipahi Sahaba. Uh, also, we have Al Qaeda network in the Fata region. So, all uh, these networks, uh, which have different names, but and they have, uh, in some cases, they have different agendas. But the one thing which they share that is uh, their anti-US uh, approach. Uh, so uh, all these organizations are not only a threat for the U.S., but also now they have become more a threat for Pakistan and for the people of uh, Pakistan. Uh, a few days back, as uh, Wendy Chamberlain told that Tahrik uh, Taliban Pakistan killed uh, a moderate uh, religious leader in Lahore, and his name was Sarfaraz Naimi. So anybody who is uh, rising against uh, Baitullah Mahsud and his ideology, he is either killed or captured or kidnapped. Uh, that was the black side of uh, Pakistan. Uh, but we have also some positive signs. Like you see that uh, during the past two years, there was a very strong movement in Pakistan, uh, the liar movement. So there is a strong civil society in Pakistan. Uh, who can uh, uh, who can shape uh, the policies of Pakistan in the coming uh, future? Uh, that strong civil society; uh, those news were not uh, very much uh, are effectively portrayed in the Western media or in the U.S. media. So uh, that is a very strong point that in Pakistan there is a strong civil society. Also, there is a strong middle class. Pakistan has a population of 170 million people, and uh, around 60 million people, uh, they are in the middle class, and they are, most of them are against the Taliban ideology. Taliban are a bunch of people uh, when we compare it to the rest of the population of Pakistan. And also, one of the most important things is that Pakistan has a very vibrant media these days. Pakistan has more than 50 uh, independent TV channels now, uh, who are debating almost every subject, every day, and uh, people are giving their feedback, uh, people are participating in those debates. So that is also a very good point that uh, we can say that if these uh, forces are there, Pakistan can turn into uh, a moderate country. Uh, a few days back, uh, Pakistani military officials uh, um, declared a, 
military oppression against Baitullah Mahsud in South Waziristan, they call it uh, Rahinijat. Uh, the name suggests Rahinijat, uh, we can uh, uh, translate as, uh, as clean up or salvation from uh, Taliban. So the name suggests that the military uh, Pakistan is now very much serious in uh, in pushing back or uh, eliminating the Taliban. Uh, both military and civilian government is on the same page. This is the first time uh, in the history of Pakistan that uh, the military as well as the civilian government, government, they are against the Taliban and they are supporting the uh, military operation. But also the, uh, the other important thing is that the Pakistani public is supporting these operations. If you uh, see only a few months back, uh, the Pakistani public were not in support of military operations against Taliban. They were asking for dialogue with Taliban. They were asking for uh, uh, peace pacts with Taliban. And they also approved uh, TNSM uh, 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 when TNSM was asking that there should be a Sharia in Sawat and Malakanda region. So the people were in favor of uh, that Sharia. But later on, when the public came to know that Taliban are not interested in Sharia, but they have some other design. They want to uh, take over uh, other cities of Pakistan, and they want to have their own brand of uh, Sharia and their own rule in Pakistan. So the people went against them, and now they are supporting the Pakistani uh, military oppression. Also, majority of religious leaders and institutions are condemning Talibanization. This is also the first time that we see that publicly the religious leaders are uh, going against Talibanization in Pakistan and they are condem condemning it, except a few organizations like Jamaat Islami. Uh, will this operation be sustainable? Uh, there are little chances that this could be sustainable. The reasons are that there is no proper and effective counter-insurgency police in the FATA area. There is a frontier core, but that is not effective. They don't have the equipments. Uh, they don't have the training. So they are lacking in many uh, respects. So, And the police is, the regular police is not there in the FATA region. Uh, also, top militant leadership is still at large. The people doubt that if they are there, they can come back uh, when the military oppression is over and they can again start their militant activities. Also, there is no visible strategy, dismantle ideological basis for militants. Militants have strong ideological basis there. And so far, we don't see any visible strategy. And the concept of strategic assets. Uh, also, uh, the Pakistani uh, military and uh, 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 civil establishment still think that uh, India is bigger threat than the Taliban. So there is a attack of good and bad Taliban. So unless and until the good and bad Taliban uh, concept doesn't go away till that time we cannot have a sustainable sustainability of uh, that uh, Rahe Nijat operations there.
threats to U.S. interest. These Taliban's are not only threat for the Pakistani government, but also for the U.S. interest. They are going uh, frequently. They are uh, going cross border into Afghanistan, and they are hitting the U.S. forces and NATO allies. Uh, also, they are attacking the supply chain to U.S. and NATO troops in Afghanistan. Uh, that is the only uh, cheaper way for the U.S. troops uh, and the NATO troops to supply uh, um, food and uh, other things through from Karachi through Khyber. Uh, so that is uh, in danger. Uh, also, Taliban are harboring Al-Qaeda and other global and regional jihadists, which is also a big threat for uh, um, the U.S. And how to challenge the spread of militancy. So this is something very important. We need broader collective and regional approaches in line with local solutions, removing root causes of terrorism, bringing leaders of militant outfits to justice. The time is little, so we can just go over them. Uh, how to challenge the spread of militancy. Training counterinsurgency police, which is much needed. Um, making use of traditional type, tribal lashkars. They are very important. Tribal lashkars uh, have been very successful in areas where they have some support of the government. Uh, this, is, this, this could be more effective than uh, uh, in the Alambar province of Iraq because they have an old tradition of making lashkars against uh, the criminals and also bringing Fatah into mainstream Pakistan. Pa Fatah is uh, an area which is called unruled area, an uh, ungoverned or no-go area. So this should be brought into the mainstream. Uh, and... Uh, I will tell you that FATA has no um, courts so far. There are no courts, no police system, no proper judiciary. Uh, so how to challenge the spread of militancy? Uh, we have now IDPs, which are more than 2 million in Pakistan. So we can use them as an opportunity. Uh, they can be a risk also. They can be exploited by the Taliban, their sympathies, if they are not given proper food and shelter. So uh, we, uh, the USA is giving the biggest uh, aid to the IDPs so far. So we can reach to the IDPs and we should, uh, we should inform them that uh, who is coming to your salvation. More civilian aid alongside military assistance, removing trust deficit between Pakistan and the USA. Uh, already talked by the Wendy Chamberlain, and how to challenge the spread of militancy. We, we also need some other steps. Why brand U.S. public diplomacy towards Pakistan? Uh, this is very much important that uh, the public, U.S. public diplomacy, I think it is still uh, weaker. Uh, more people-to-people -people contacts, cultural exchange programs, uh, these in these cultural programs, uh, Pashtuns can be engaged, the religious elders, tribal elders, and other political and also military officials. Uh, so th there is a trust deficit so that it can go away, and strategic communication. Uh, Taliban have strong FM channels. They are propagating their views through, uh, through those channels, and we don't have effective communication strategy to tell the Pashtun people that uh, who is who, who is, in, uh, who is your sympathizer and who is your enemy. So this is the right time that we have a strategic communication strategy to send the message, to the, especially to the Pashtun and people living in Fata. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Thank you. Thanks, Chris and Malu, for the invitation to speak today. I'm going to talk about nuclear security in Pakistan and how it's evolved and where we are and where it is that um, uh, that we may be going. And uh, let me just start with a brief overview of what does the nuclear arsenal in Pakistan look like. It's very small compared to the United States and Russia. The United States and Russia had thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons. Uh, the arsenal in Pakistan is about 60 nuclear warheads. Their fissile material production is about 100 kilograms annually. And um, the most important thing, I think, to recognize about both of those two facts is that's the baseline today, and it's growing, and it's going to continue to grow in the current environment uh, that we have vis-a-vis India and uh, Pakistan security um, concerns. And as has been mentioned before, their, uh, their reverence for nuclear weapons in the country as a guarantor of their security. The last piece on this, I think, is probably most interesting, and that is that the weapons are dispersed, they're demated, the missiles are separate from the warheads, the um, materials are spread around, they're not together, they're not in silos like we have in North Dakota uh, or in Russia, and um, the Pakistanis like it that way. The problem is the U.S. intelligence community doesn't like it that way because it's very difficult to tell where the weapons are at any one time or where they are, period. Um, the known complex, this looks like a, you know, what people commonly call an eye chart. There's a lot of information on there. Um, but I think the most important thing to know is uh, that it's a fairly extensive nuclear infrastructure that the Pakistanis have. It's reasonably complex. It does include plutonium uh, extraction. It includes uranium Enrichment. It includes uh, nuclear reactors and heavy water production. If you just take a look down on the lower left and the top of the right, you'll see what's coming up, and that is new heavy water reactor um, production uh, and also uh, new um, uh, nuclear reactors in uh, in Chasma and uh, and Walpindi and other places. So the the. Uh, interesting thing to note is that Pakistan is not a member of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. They do have interaction with the International Atomic Energy Agency, but it's on a limited basis. There's only four reactors that are safeguarded by the IAEA. Uh, and uh, uh, somehow we have to figure out a better way to cooperate with Pakistan on the question of nuclear uh, weapons and nuclear security. I was struck by the uh, common theme in uh, in both Ambassador Chamberlain's presentation uh, and in Mukhtar's presentation uh, about the trust deficit. Well, I think this is part of the reason for the trust deficit right here. I think that uh, the United States intelligence community and the United States analytical community is concerned about what the threat is to these weapons. Just to take a step back, realize that before the nuclear tests in 1999, there was not in place a very robust system for nuclear security in Pakistan. That's changed since the nuclear tests, uh, but it's only about 10 years old. So what are we worried about? The U.S. number one concern is the insider threat, Uh, and that is the radicalization, the Islamist radicalization of younger scientists in nuclear facilities and in the younger generation uh, in the military. And I think if you talk to knowledgeable Pakistani officials, they will tell you that this is um, one of their 
top concerns, and as a result, they have been working on what's called a personnel reliability program to try and make sure they screen people uh, adequately. The second biggest challenge, I think, is the cohesion of the military, because the military runs the nuclear weapons complex and manages the nuclear assets day to day. If there was a split in the military, that could be a challenge. And then, obviously, the physical security of the facilities and of the weapons themselves and the reliability of the people that are managing the system. Scenario two, Islamic take, uh, Islamist takeover um, of, uh, of the country. I put this as an unlikely uh, scenario in part because when you look at the uh, voter turnout and the uh, percentages for Islamic parties in the vote in 2008, it was actually very, very low. And the International Crisis Group has, has underscored what Mukhtar said. There's a very large and wide um, non-militant uh, middle class in, in Pakistan. Uh, political upheaval. I, I think um, the challenge is that attacks on government military targets actually have increased quite substantially in the last year, especially. And I think that that's uh, something to be concerned about. Um, the control of the weapons and the confidence in nuclear security I think if there was a political upheaval, very much depends on what happens in the military. It goes back to the cohesion of the military, uh, which right now is, is, does not seem to be a major, a major issue. And then finally, something new on the horizon is kind of old and new, which is nuclear umbrellas and nuclear leakages. I think everyone's familiar um, with the AQCON nuclear proliferation network. It's helped the Iranians with their uranium enrichment. It's helped the Libyans uh, with their nuclear infrastructure now dismantled. Um, nobody knows the full extent, or at least publicly hasn't spoken about what the full extent of the Khan network is. Uh, and I think there's a question about whether it can happen again. Pakistani officials are understandably extremely uh, defensive about this subject, and they claim that it can happen again. Uh, but I think that there's a question. And then a new issue on the horizon is um, whether the Pakistanis, in, in reaction to an Iranian weaponization, not a civilian nuclear program that doesn't become weaponized, but a weaponization of the Iranian nuclear program, whether or not they would um, extend their nuclear umbrella to other countries, potentially to Saudi Arabia. I don't want to dwell on the insurgency because um, others have talked about it in more, in more detail. Uh, but the, this quote, in the first quote there is from the State Department report on terrorism from April 2009 uh, and indicates that, uh, that there's been an increase of attacks on well-protected military and government installations. And I think we've seen that in Ralpindi um, in particular. One thing I do find interesting is this statistic, which our staff dug up and I wasn't aware of, which is that um, the private security guard force in Pakistan has grown uh, quite substantially and may outnumber the actual official police force sometime in the near future, in the next few years. And then, obviously, the, the insurgency is well dispersed. Let me just um, talk a little bit, because I think this is it's actually quite important, um, the evolution of nuclear security in Pakistan. This is, for all of the flaws of the Musharraf regime, this is a Musharraf initiative, and I think it's worked... Um, it's worked well up to this point. It's not perfect, obviously, but it has worked well. And it's called a National Command Authority, and it has several different tiers. Um, the first tier is the President and the Prime Minister, and the second tier is the Military Strategic Plans Division, and then the third tier is the actual um, services. I'm going to talk more about that in just a second. 
The uh, Convention on Physical Protection of Nuclear Materials that, that Pakistan has now uh, ratified, the Personal Reliability Program, which I mentioned that they're working on with the United States, Export Control Act of 2004, which Pakistani officials actually make a, uh, take a lot of pride in, but I think when you uh, take a look at the facts, you realize that almost all of the sensitive nuclear um, technology is controlled by the government. So they're really controlling themselves under this Export Act. There's not much which is done in the private sector. Uh, and then there's the there's, uh, Pakistani Regulatory Commission and the Pakistani Atomic Energy Commission, which um, regulate civilian nuclear activities. I don't usually like to put these kind of charts up, but I thought it would be useful so you could see um, what the chain of command is. And then I'm going to make a comment about it. The president, obviously, uh, Ali Asif Zadari, and the vice uh, chairman is the prime minister. The strategic plans division is run by a general named General Kid Y. Um, what's important here is uh, the order of those two boxes. They really should be reversed. Uh, because the Strategic Plans Division is the authority on and the controller of the nuclear infrastructure in Pakistan. And I'll give you one um, one brief vignette about why I think that that's irrefutable. I saw Zadari on Meet the Press about a month ago, and he was asked by David Gregory, who's in control of nuclear weapons in Pakistan? And he said... Uh, the military has its hemisphere, and I control the country. So I think it's clear um, who controls the nuclear weapons. I thought it was a fascinating answer. It hasn't gotten a lot of attention. What is the U.S. doing? As you can imagine, after 9-11, the uh, level of interest in nuclear security in Pakistan spiked quite substantially, and it evolved from an arms control concern, how do we make sure that India and Pakistan don't grow their arsenals, get them to agree to a cutoff in the production of nuclear material for weapons and those sorts of things. And it, it, it morphed into, when we're still interested in those things, the, the top priority became how do we make sure that the nuclear infrastructure and weapons in Pakistan uh, are not seized by insurgents or do not become, quote-unquote, loose nukes um, in South Asia. So Colin Powell initiated this dialogue in October 2001 uh, I, the Pakistanis have insisted, and I, I, I have not found any crack in, in the official statements on this, that it be non-sensitive and non-intrusive. And I think what that means is that most of the dialogue is taking place about how the U.S. does things and trips to the United States are occurring, not so much U.S. trips to sensitive facilities in Pakistan. In fact, I don't think that's happening at all. And the things they're working on are personal reliability, as I said, nuclear material protection, uh, export controls, and um, and we've provided some equipment. Overall, we've provided about $100 million. I think that figure is actually low, uh, but that's what's been publicly uh, reported. And it does not extend to the, quote-unquote, safety of nuclear uh, weapons, which is the issue that has been alluded to earlier, which is what would we, the United States do in a crisis in Pakistan uh, with the nuclear assets that are there. Uh, just um, some ancillary things that we're doing in export and border control, container security initiative, which is to screen uh, the throughput of, uh, of uh, cargo, 
the second line of defense, which is all, very similar to the Container Security Initiative and, in fact, is linked up with it. And megaports, they're all kind of similar programs run by different agencies, all focused on making sure that no nuclear um, trafficking uh, occurs. So where do we go um, from here? I, I don't think that Pakistan is on the verge of a collapse, and I don't think that uh, there's going to be a takeover by the Taliban or by insurgents. I mean, the Pakistanis have a special guard force of about 90,000 troops, which is designed to protect the outside of the facilities. Um, the insider threat, as I said, is a separate issue. Uh, as I mentioned, Musharraf um, put in place this evolution of uh, nuclear security, which I think is actually important and has worked. Um, but there are a lot of challenges that we face in the future. One, how are we going to integrate Pakistan into the nonproliferation treaty, uh, and not, I'm sorry, into the nonproliferation community uh, and the nuclear security community? We essentially have overlooked what it is. Um, that the, that the Indians have done, in other words, not joining the Nonproliferation Treaty, and we've allowed them uh, to become a partner with the United States in civil nuclear cooperation. We have not extended a similar uh, opportunity to, to Pakistan. We did that for more strategic considerations than, I think, nuclear considerations. Um, second, this speculation about the seizure of Pakistan's nuclear weapons in a crisis uh, is – it's beyond counterproductive. I think that – I don't think it was Ambassador Chamberlain who said, you know, it is the number one um, issue on which there is no give on the part of any Pakistani that I've ever talked to, save a handful. Um, they are not interested in um, any discussion of the seizure of their nuclear assets by the United States. Uh, but we do have to build on the relationship. Now, you know, most of the money is going into this military-to-military -military counterinsurgency activity. A small amount is going into nuclear security. Um, the stories in recent months have not helped that relationship, and it's kind of drifting along. But I do think that one thing we should be willing to talk to uh, the Pakistanis about is how we might structure a nuclear cooperation agreement with them. Uh, I think that's probably the route into a more in-depth uh, conversation with them and more sensitive conversation with them on nuclear security it would have to be criteria-based. Uh, in other words, they would have to give up, um, more information about Khan and, and show us steps that they're taking. Uh, but I do think it's something that we ought to consider at least discussing. And finally, um, this is uh, something I have no knowledge whether or not this is true, but um, to get around the question of seizure of nuclear assets. We have an awful lot of special forces equipment and special forces people in Afghanistan. Uh, and in a, an emergency situation, I'm not quite sure why the Pakistani government wouldn't be willing to invite U.S. forces as a protective force in an emergency, not a seizure force, but to protect individual facilities. At any rate, that's a controversial suggestion, and uh, let me leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Thank you all for coming. I'm happy to be here. Regarding foreign affairs, too often we enmesh ourselves in the minutia of policy. We dissect this or that spending bill, subcommittee hearing, or political speech. But with such a close level of examination, we neglect the bigger picture. That's what we've done with U.S. foreign policy toward Pakistan. 
We've gotten so far down in the weeds that we've overlooked whether we have an accurate understanding of the broader strategy. As I will discuss, since September 11th, the United States has misunderstood three fundamental elements about Pakistan. Number one, policymakers have underestimated how greatly leaders leaders in Islamabad fear the rise of an India-leaning government in Kabul. Number two, our attempts to stabilize Afghanistan destabilize Pakistan. Not only does our presence in the region fuel Pakistan's insurgency, but our targeting of tribal safe havens with unmanned aerial vehicles pushes militants deeper into Pakistan and strengthens the very jihadist forces we seek to defeat. And number three, America's toxic public image and sordid political past with Islamabad feeds conspiracy theories, contributing to the lack of public trust on both sides. These three factors, political uncertainty in Afghanistan, unwelcome American interference in the region, and the trust deficit, predispose Pakistanis against helping the United States. And it's this strategic chasm between Islamabad and Washington that we overlook when we, over, when we actually examine the finer points of policy. The first issue is Afghanistan. Ideally, Afghanistan, the United States, NATO, and Pakistan would work together to meet shared challenges in the region. But each actor perceives different threats to its interests. For Pakistan, the existential threat is India. That might seem preposterous to us in Washington, because our leaders press Pakistan to tackle the jihadist problem more vigorously. But we don't share a border with a country nearly six times our size, and we need to recognize that. Although Pakistan and India's dispute over Kashmir has catalyzed their repeated militarized confrontations, the roots of their struggle are not exclusively territorial. It's also Hindu-Muslim hostility. It's Pakistan's loss of three full-scale wars and numerous border skirmishes. Pakistan's fear of India has existed for decades, and it's not going to be turned off like a light switch. That fear might continue for the foreseeable future, considering India's continued economic, demographic, and military growth. What does this have to do with Afghanistan? Associates of Pakistan's military and national intelligence agency aid the insurgency in Afghanistan to blunt India's rising influence next door. Not only does India strongly support Afghan President Hamid Karzai's regime, but India's external intelligence agency may be using Indian consulates in Afghanistan to secretly funnel weapons to separatists in Pakistan's Balochistan province. As C. Christine Fair, a senior research associate at the United States Institute of Peace notes, quote, I think it is unfair to dismiss the notion that Pakistan's apprehensions about Afghanistan stem in part from its security competition with India. Indian officials have told me privately that they are pumping money into Balochistan, end quote. Aside from Fair's comments, my contacts have confirmed the existence of Indian intelligence outposts in Afghanistan. These deepening ties between India and Afghanistan stoke Pakistani fears of encirclement. And let's contemplate history. Back in 1971, Bengali separatists in Pakistan's easternmost province seceded from Pakistan with India's assistance. So the fear of history repeating itself makes Pakistani leaders committed to securing strategic depth in Afghanistan, their regional backyard, and they do so by proxy via jihadists. Today, India inspires profound existential insecurity onto Pakistan. 80% of Pakistan's military is still on the border with India, not Afghanistan. President Obama cannot guarantee the Pakistanis that if they remove those forces, India will not invade. Again, it might sound preposterous, but they see this as reality. We must recognize the importance of history, culture, and nationalism which rarely filter into American discussions of policy. For millions of Americans, the operation in Afghanistan was a justifiable response to the atrocities of September 11th. 
but to the vast majority of Pakistanis, the foreign military presence in Afghanistan is a hostile occupation of the region. And they feel, given speculation over Indian consulates in Afghanistan, that the United States is either incompetent or complicit with India's activities. Along with Pakistan's fear of an unfriendly government coming to power in Kabul, possibly with Washington's assistance, Another problem we have overlooked is the extent to which the tactics of aerial drone strikes alienates millions of Pakistanis across the political spectrum. Insurgents cross Pakistan's highly porous border with Afghanistan, usually along the federally administered tribal areas, or Fatah, to attack the Afghan government, U.S. and NATO forces, and humanitarian aid workers. Pakistani security forces have been unable to uproot militant sanctuaries, so leaders in Washington have decided to tackle the problem themselves. Most U.S. attacks on Fatah are carried out through missiles fired by unmanned aerial vehicles. In principle, U.S. and NATO troops have the right to respond to attacks on their person. But that principle should neither preclude scrutiny of the broader U.S.-NATO mission, nor obscure that drone strikes are pushing militants deeper into Pakistan, exacerbating militancy, and reinforcing the narrative that militants are fighting against the injustice of a foreign occupation. Lately, Policy planners and defense planners in Washington have grown concerned about the repercussions of drone strikes. But in defense of drone strikes, some U.S. officials point to the killing of high-level al-Qaeda militants. But even if tomorrow Osama bin Laden were struck dead by an aerial drone, the jihadist insurgency would not melt away. In this respect, we must understand the culture and the customs of the people we are bombing. In the words of Robert C. Johansson, professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, the Pashtun Wali Code of Honor the pre-Islamic tribal code to which Pashtun tribes straddling the Afpak border adhere, quote, often required them to repay insult with injury. Acts of revenge were an honorable duty and frequently inherited from generation to generation, causing many to die young. Nearly all men carried firearms and prized them highly. Wars were the normal business of the land, and resistance to all outsiders was an ancient way of life, unquote. Collateral damage ripples disastrously in a tribal society that highly values honor and revenge. Personal and collective vendettas can last for generations. One U.S. military official who spoke on the condition of anonymity to McClatchy newspaper correspondent Jonathan Landay called drone operations, quote, a recruiting windfall for the Pakistani Taliban, unquote. Citizens living outside Fatah also detest drones, as General David Petraeus himself has acknowledged. Pakistani anger toward U.S. policies manifests in their alleged ambivalence toward extremists. But Pakistanis are not ambivalent towards extremism. They oppose extremism. They simply disagree with America's tactics. America, in their eyes, facilitates the rise of these militants and then demands that Pakistan cleans up the mess. Now you can see why Pakistanis are so incredulous. Drone attacks backfire enormously if the goal is to win rather than alienate hearts and minds. Moreover, drones do nothing to address the strategic chasm between Islamabad and Washington. So drone strikes, while effective at killing some high-level jihadists, do nothing to secure Pakistani support for fighting militants. Another unfortunate outcome of overlooking the bigger picture is the outlandish conspiracy theories, largely reinforced by present actions, but also by Washington's sordid past with Islamabad. U.S. policymakers have little control over conspiracy theories but knowing them would help us to better understand the absence of trust between America and Pakistan. In all countries, domestic development shape policy toward other countries. In Pakistan, based on polling data, my personal meetings in Pakistan with people from all walks of life, and editorials published in English-language Pakistani newspapers, you conclude several things. That the vast majority of people believe 9-11 was an inside job by the United States and Israel. 
that America foments instability along the AFPAC border as a pretext to remain in Afghanistan and to sabotage China's influence in the Indian Ocean Basin, and that the United States and India want to seize Pakistan's nuclear weapons and dismember the country. Now, within Washington, such beliefs seem absurd and are subsequently dismissed. But Pakistani viewpoints should be the starting point of America's discussion about the future of militancy in the country. After all, the United States can never be Pakistan's ally when Pakistanis perceive America as the enemy. The well, however, is already poisoned. Pakistani fears of a nascent U.S.-India alliance deepened in 2008 after U.S. lawmakers ratified the long-stalled U.S.-India nuclear deal. The court over civilian nuclear power will strengthen ties between the two countries, feeding Pakistani's suspicions that Washington sees a limited long-term utility in a strategic partnership with Islamabad. And Washington's actions make it politically unpopular, if not downright suicidal, for Pakistani leaders to explicitly support U.S. policies. General Pervez Musharraf's regime faced this predicament when it had no choice but to ally openly with the United States, but simultaneously preserve proxy assets as a hedge to Indian influence. After Musharraf formally aligned with Washington and the U.S. began bombing targets in Afghanistan, Malana Fazlur Rahman, who heads Pakistan's Islamist political party, Jamiat Ulama Islam, led large anti-U.S., anti-Musharraf, and pro-Taliban rallies in major Pakistani cities. The problem remains. In April 2009, an al-Qaeda commander urged followers, quote, the criminals in the Pakistani government and army have not only been a cover for the occupying crusader infidels in Afghanistan, they have directly helped them in committing all their crimes in Afghanistan and elsewhere, unquote. America also has a reputation as a fair-weather friend. After Pakistan's 1965 war with India, President Lyndon Johnson suspended aid to both countries. Pakistanis felt betrayed, whereas India suffered little because it received most of its military assistance from the Soviet Union. The worst hit to the relationship came in 1990, after Soviet forces withdrew from Afghanistan. After Pakistan had spent years aiding our proxy war against our rival superpower, America instituted Pressler Amendment sanctions against Pakistan for its covert nuclear program. So in conclusion, many Pakistanis consider the United States the source of all their country's problems. That is certainly not the case. The crises of sectarian violence and economic insolvency are almost completely homegrown. In fact, I would argue that Pakistan must put its own house in order, especially in regard to aiding militants. Pakistan cannot claim to be an innocent victim of the insurgency because they, like us, are suffering blowback for our policies in the 1980s. But although America is not primarily responsible for Pakistan's chaos, to assume our presence does not impact the country would be simplistic. The United States desperately needs a candid reappraisal of policy in the region. Certainly, Aid packages and other inducements might work, and I like them. But remember what I mentioned at the beginning of my speech. Let's not enmesh ourselves in the minutia of policy. Forget about the little things and look at the broader picture. All the aid in the world can't hide bad policy. And a better solution is to cease the conduct that causes these problems in the first place. If America's interests lie in stabilizing Pakistan and ensuring that the virus of anti-American radicalism does not infect the rest of the country, the fundamental objective should be to get out of Afghanistan. We do not have a vital interest in attaining hegemony in Central Asia. We are thrusting our troops into the middle of a proxy war between two nuclear-armed powers. And our tactics are fomenting militancy amongst a tribal people that will continue to fight us in perpetuity. We should continue our intelligence sharing with Pakistan and retain covert forces for operations against specific targets. But we should not have an indefinite military presence in this region. For me, the future of U.S. foreign policy toward Pakistan should involve an exit strategy from the region. Thank you.
we've got about uh, thanks to all the panelists. I was uh, uh, I didn't have to try too hard to keep them on time, uh, and uh, we've left a little bit of time for questions. I have to abuse my uh, my moderator's privilege. I have one very simple yes or no question for Ken Luongo with respect to the personnel reliability program. Knowing what you know about the PRP, would it have found AQCon? No. Yeah, that's what I thought. All right. Thank you for that quick answer. Um, Okay, so please wait for the microphone. Please identify yourself, and please keep it very short. I'm sure there are many questions. You've been very patient. Uh, Let's leave uh, time for the uh, panelists and your fellow uh, uh, attendees to uh, answer your questions. Sir, right here. My name is Rana Fawad, and I'm a freelance journalist. Uh, we have talked about winning the hearts and minds of Pakistanis, which is very essential. But one element is still missing from the analysis in Washington, D.C., and that is human rights, the issue of human rights in Pakistan, especially the way uh, the United States conducted its operations after 9-11, in Pakistan, hundreds of people are missing, and they are becoming a face of anti-American feeling. And one of that face is Dr. Ali's lady physician. She disappeared from Karachi in 2003, and next she appeared in New York in 2007. Human Rights Commission of Pakistan is like raising its voice, everybody. But it seems that nobody's listening. So your que- your question, sir? Or- do you do you think it's important for the U.S. policymakers to give it a consideration? Thanks. Uh, I think the simple answer answer is yes, uh, and I think that the uh, American people answered that yes. You know, every four years we have uh, an exercise we go through in the United States, and that's called a presidential election where every single American citizen uh, who hasn't committed a felon uh, has the opportunity uh, to express himself. And uh, we were very clear that we wanted a change of policies that you have just criticized. Uh, And it's very clear that President Obama, right from the get-go, has instituted, taken steps to change some of those policies. Um, uh, so I think the answer to that is is clearly yes. Now, on your question about the disappeared in Pakistan, uh, not all of that's on us, thank you very much. Uh, and in fact, the uh, Iftikhar Chowdhury's uh, problems with President Musharraf gets to that issue. Chowdhury, the, the Supreme Court, uh, chairman of the Supreme Court, had made a promise to families that he would hear cases about Pakistani disappeared that uh, they, families had alleged were disappeared at the hands of the ISI and the government. Uh, and it was that issue. This was missed in our press. You saw it a bit, but it, but it was missed largely in the American press. It was that issue that led to Musharraf uh, uh, firing and, and removing Iftikhar Chowdhury, at least in the first instance. So that's an entirely different issue, and that led to the lawyers' movement, a movement which I was distressed that the American government didn't back wholeheartedly from the beginning, didn't call from the beginning for uh, uh, 
to, to restore Iftikhar Chowdhury. Uh, and those are human rights issues that I think uh, are important. You'll, you'll remember that the Middle East Institute invited Iftikhar um, and uh, Etisas Hassan and gave him an award uh, in, uh, in, uh, in November of 2007, uh, before the election wanting to make a point that we must support human rights, we must support the rule of law uh, in Pakistan, and we must support um, uh, restoration of an independent judiciary. Thank you. Uh, down here. Thank you. I'm John McCormick with the NG Policy Center, and thank you for this marvelous panel. Um, I would like uh, Ambassador Chamberlain and Mr. Khan to look forward to perhaps November and December in Pakistan. Two and a half million, perhaps three million displaced people. Um, some of those areas that were uh, evacuated were agricultural lands where now perhaps crops are not being harvested, livestock are lost. If some do go back, they go back to an area where governance is likely nil, um, how is Pakistan going to survive what's likely going to be a massive food crisis unless there's huge uh, support from both India and China? Thank you for the question. I am wild about this prospect. And I don't even want to wait till November and December to be distressed. I'm really very distressed right now. Uh, 80% of the uh, uh, internal refugees are outside of camps and therefore not being registered by UNHCR and not receiving assistance. Uh, their, their guests and families and friends uh, who are already uh, stretched beyond capacity for taking care of them. The temperatures are 110, 120 degrees now. Uh, it, this is a miserable situation. Okay, that's just the humanitarian side of it. Uh, and, and the UN is, is very... Uh, Active. It's active in asking for money. But, but uh, I don't see nearly enough humanitarian assistance getting to the people who are outside of those camps. And I, I see that enormous sums of money in the appeals by the U.N., which I know, having worked in the U.N., ends up mostly at headquarters uh, and, and not helping people. Now, the Pakistan government has said that it will provide uh, 2,500 rupees to each uh, internal refugee family. That hasn't started yet, and they've got to register them to find them. It's too slow. Okay, that's not what I'm wild about. What I'm really wild about is that there is not even any thinking about rebuilding, and this is really your question, uh, in these flattened, um, villages and, and cities in, in the SWAT. There's no water, there's no electricity, not to mention the farms, the roads are destroyed. People are going to go back to the houses. The police can't go back to keep safety if there's no police stations. Uh, uh, there should be a massive rebuilding effort on right now. And instead, there's no thinking. Now, what should we be doing about it? We should be Assisting the Pakistan government with that thinking, we should have a vigorous, dynamic, robust, muscular, competent, professional USAID, United States uh, Agency for International Development, in there doing it. But frankly, over the last couple of decades, 
our government, decades, you know, this is not a blame of any one party or one administration. It's happened over many years, has destroyed the capability of USAID so that it's incapable of, of providing that kind of assistance. And this administration has not even named an administrator yet. So we haven't even begun to rebuild our own capacity to help Pakistan rebuild their capacity. Um, would either Mukhtar or Malou want to weigh in on that? Mukhtar first. Uh, this is a very major, major crisis, to put it in the words of Richard Holbrook. Uh, he was visiting those uh, refugee camps uh, in the first week of uh, this month. Uh, majority of the people, uh, they are going through severe crisis, especially the uh, children and women. The, the crisis of an enormous level of... Uh, there was a need that Pakistani government should have an arrangement uh, before starting the military operations. And uh, today we saw that uh, uh, more than 50,000 people were leaving South Waziristan Agency. And they have no camps, no area to... Uh, even in my home in Mardan, which is just down the uh, Bunir area, there were staying uh, 50 uh, people. So in every home... Uh, major, many people are staying because they cannot go to camps. There is no electricity, no food, no proper shelter. So now it it is the um, uh, responsibility of the entire national community, especially the U.S., the Muslim world, the Arab countries especially, and also the West, to give to their um, rescue. And otherwise, they can be. Um, exploited by the Taliban and other militants. Yeah, so this Great. is a major, major crisis. Thank you. Malou, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think this speaks to uh, Mukhtar's presentation when he mentioned that we should be investing more in uh, counterinsurgency techniques and offering more training to the police forces. Uh, when you go into uh, an area, you can't really go in there with full force, especially when you consider the problem of uh, increased militancy as a result of uh, in resulting of collateral damage. You really need low-level clear-and-hold counterinsurgency techniques to go in door-by-door, door, and it's very difficult to do, but it's uh, it definitely uh, alleviates all the problems that you have with the IDPs in the long run. Okay, I've got time for about two more questions right here and then there. Go ahead, sir. My name is Dr. Cathy. I'm a veterinarian. I work in Israel, uh, France, England, Pakistan, Dubai, and all over the world. I have a hospital in Sawat, uh, uh, which flew the American flag. And we had uh, veterinarians. They promoted the American interest in that hospital. We never saw anybody come to us and hit us or hit us or our people were kidnapped. They like American very much. My question now is about the mis mistrust, distrust, mistrust. You mentioned that uh, uh, Mr. Khan uh, had one slide, the first slide, and there was a terrorist with the FM, F, FM equipment on, on his uh, shoulder. Terrorists are, commu terrorists are communicating with FM equipment. And Pakistan does not have the technology to jam the FM equipment. Will America consider giving them the FM jamming equipment? Uh, the uh, ambassador, well, uh, uh, let me just put it this way. The request has been made and the request was uh, answered positively. In other words, yes, we are going to provide that kind of equipment. Uh, right there, there was a question. Might have time for one more if you make it quick. Hi, my name is Shohini Sarkar. I'm from Physicians for Social Responsibility. 
Um, President Obama is currently um, encouraging senators to ratify the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. Do you foresee Pakistan ratifying this treaty in the future? That's for you, Ken. I, I, got it. I, I can give a one, more, one word answer again. <laughs> I think the answer is no. I think that I, I, I think that th- that the situation has has evolved, and I do think that the Pakistanis and the Indians are interested more than they have been in the past in arms control initiatives. But I think that uh, first, it's going to have to be done in a regional context, and second, we're going to have to find a way uh, to address the concerns that they have. The CTBT, I think, is not in the cards. Even the Pakistan, even the Indians wouldn't agree uh, not to test in exchange for the uh, civil uh, nuclear cooperation agreement. So it's just a, it's an option that I don't think is going to be taken off the table uh, in that part of the world. But I do think that there's, there's opportunity for, for dialogue on these issues. Uh, quickly, here... Um, I want to congratulate the Cato Institute for holding a very nice conference and especially Melu Innocent for a refreshingly honest diagnosis of what is wrong in Pakistan. But my question is addressed to uh, Ambassador Chamberlain. I think you were the Ambassador there when I was the Minister in the Punjab government there. That You have identified very ably six issues. I think there's also a seventh issue, very important. The character and personality of uh, a person who's heading Pakistan, who's, I think, the Bernie Madoff of Pakistan. And I think this is missing, that under the hijab of democracy, we have somebody, and at this, at this critical juncture, whose very character and venality, about which there is a sweeping consensus across the nation, galvanizes militancy. And for U.S. policymakers to absorb him as a paragon of democracy... And then to talk of other issues like development and deterrence and military forces, I think, uh, completely missing the point. And secondly, I was very bemused about uh, the seriousness with which uh, this House analyzed Zardari's so-called article in yesterday's post. I, I, I can bet you that if anybody calls him on this article, he would not know the contents of the article. <laughs> <laughs> so I think America was lucky that during the Civil War, they had a man like Lincoln heading it. And I think Pakistan is not so fortunate. And his presence, by the way, is one of the key issues which empowers militancy and obscurantism. Thank you. Well, without getting uh, personal in my response, um, I... I I do agree that the uh, the militants have been able to effectively uh, present a um, um, an, an appeal, a compelling narrative to the Pakistani people. First, it's religion, which I spoke about. Secondly, it's nationalism. They have managed to capture uh, the and an, the banner of nationalism away from the government, um, and that banner is frankly anti-Americanism and anti-Indian. Um, Betula Massoud was one of the first after the Mumbai attack to say, will we, my forces will go to war with India uh, if India strikes us after Mumbai. It was uh, a militant group that struck India. So they've captured the nationalism banner. But it's the third banner that you're really talking about. And I think that they very effectively uh, understood the grievances, the deep grievances in Pakistan about its basically feudal nature. 
um, that a very few elites own vast swaths of land that whereas India made uh, after independence uh, initiated some land reform, Pakistan never did. Um, the poor are among the poorest uh, in the world and opportunities uh, aren't there. 70% of women are illiterate, 50% of men are illiterate, their jobs, the social movement is very difficult. It's basically a feudal society. And this deeply grates. Uh, now, the United States is not going to take a position on uh, 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 what leaders, people are selected in a democracy. Um, uh, but, but you'll recall in my remarks, uh, the first point I made when I got to what we should be doing politically, is that we must uh, must make it very clear to the Pakistani people that our relationship is with the people. It is not with one man, it is not with one party, and it's not with one institution. That's right from my remarks. So uh, understand what I'm saying in that remark. All right. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, we will have time uh, upstairs. I hope you will join us. Uh, please join us. Uh, join me in uh, thanking our uh, panelists one final time. <laughs>